Thank you for having me with you today. I've been told actually to hold this if necessary. So if you're in the back and you can't hear me, start waving frantically. Okay, fantastic. So I want to pick up on a few things that Dr. Junker said last time and then do a sort of general overview because we haven't all signed on to be at every single lecture. So I think it would be helpful to figure out where we are before we go forward. So one of the things that Dr. Junker said last time was that if you look at each of the punishments and each of the circles as we head down through hell, there is a connection between what's happening in the circle 
and the sin of the people in the circle, of course. So I wanted to start out by just noting a few things that actually Augustine has to say on sin and inordinate desire. Okay, so I chose on free choice of the will. You could choose at random from Augustine's works and get many of the same ideas. But I think that this will help us start out with just having some notion of what sin looks like and how to think about it. Okay, so let me just start at the top here. So a good will is a will by which we desire to live upright and honorable lives and to attain the highest wisdom. Okay, so the work is on free choice of the will, and this is a pretty clear notion of what it is we're supposed to be doing. So a good will, a will by which we choose rightly, would look like this. It's a will that's desiring particular kinds of goods. So in this case, the upright and noble life and the highest wisdom. In On Free Choice of the Will, Augustine just hammers on the notion that we are indeed free. So when he asks the question, he's going back and forth with Evodius, about how sin comes about, what that would even look like, and why we're responsible for it, right? why it's entirely my choice. He notes that only its own will and free choice can make the mind a companion, sorry, a companion of cupidity. In this case, he means inordinate desire. So let me talk about inordinate desire for a minute. One of the things that you have sort of throughout your tradition is the notion that everything that's created is a good, okay? So we have natural desires. Of course we have desires. And since we're rational animals, some of our desires are intellectual and some of our desires go with our animal nature. So one of the things that Augustine is trying to sort of play out is trying to figure out what an inordinate desire would mean. So if every desire we have is for something good, then how can some of our desires be bad? Right? What does that look like? What makes a desire inordinate? So I don't have this quote up because it's too long, but let me read to you. How can anyone suffer an unhappy life by the will when absolutely no one wills to be unhappy? Now notice what he's done, right? We're completely free. We're in charge of our wills. Only we control our wills and everyone wants to be happy. But we've got a ton of people who are unhappy. So what's going on? Those who are happy must also be good. Those who are happy must also be good. They are not happy simply because they will to be happy. Even the wicked will that. But because they will it in the right way, whereas the wicked do not. Let's keep that in mind as we start heading through circles. They will it in the right way while the wicked do not. So it's no surprise that unhappy human beings do not attain the happy life that they will, for they do not likewise will the one thing that goes along with the happy life, without which no one attains it or is worthy to attain it, and that is to live rightly. And so when we say that it is by the will that happy human beings are happy and that unhappy human beings are unhappy, we don't mean that the unhappy will to be unhappy, but that their will is in such a state that unhappiness must follow whether they will it or not. Okay, so it's willing good things improperly that gets us into trouble. So when we say that inordinate desire is what drives every kind of evil doing. It's desiring the good improperly that gets us into trouble. I want to say two things about that. 
So sometimes inordinate desire is just understood to mean we desire something too much. That's often the way people will describe it, sort of colloquially. So you're too invested in this, that, or the other. That's sort of right and sort of wrong. So Augustine makes clear that part of what we're doing is trying to figure out whether we're investing ourselves in eternal things or temporal things. He knows that temporal things can be taken from us against our will. They're not things that belong to us. They're things that we might think we can keep, but we can't. He lists things like property, uh, even family members, friends, our freedom in the sense of being able to do as we wish. Those things can be taken from us. Eternal goods, on the other hand, cannot be taken from us. Pardon me. So if we focus on eternal goods, those things we can will and be completely in control of, interestingly. The other thing to say about inordinate desire is that it's also possible to love something out of place. So if I desire one good above its proper order, I prioritize incorrectly, I'm also going to be in trouble. One reason I'm choosing to start out with Augustine rather than jumping into Dante is that I was teaching this particular work this last semester, and there was a very Dante-esque kind of passage. I can't tell you that Dante was looking at this passage, but consider. So Augustine again. Surely the very fact that inordinate desire rules the mind is itself no small punishment. Stripped by opposing forces of the splendid wealth of virtue, the mind is dragged by inordinate desire into ruin and poverty, now taking false things for true, even defending these falsehoods repeatedly. Cupidity carries out a reign of terror, buffeting the whole human soul and life with storms coming from every direction. Okay. We're going to be seeing storms when we hit lust, right? Fear attacks from one side, desire from the other, from one side anxiety, from the other an empty and deceptive happiness, from one side the agony of losing what one loved, from the other the passion to acquire what one did not have. Wherever you turn, avarice can pinch, extravagance squander, ambition destroy, pride swell, envy torment, apathy crush, obstinacy incite, oppression chafe, and countless other evils crowd the realm of inordinate desire and run riot. Okay, so as we head into the circles, I want you to notice all the motion. Everybody's in motion with a few exceptions. The motion is restlessness. The motion is being driven by one's own inordinate desire. So in an interesting way, of course, we're looking at punishments that are lasting. We're looking at damnation. But as Augustine points out, the mind that's ruled by inordinate desire is already in a state of punishment because we're not in control of ourselves. But the only person who can hand over my will is me. So there's this very clear notion that I'm the one who's thrown myself into punishment, at least in this life, and I'm the one who keeps myself in this life in that punishment. Okay, so... If our hearts indeed are restless and only rest in God, then let's take a quick look at the map, where we're going, and what kind of restlessness is going to plague our souls. 
Okay. Okay, there we go. I thought you could read that better and you probably can't. So here we go. <laughs> Here's the order and we're off here. So Dr. Jonker took us through the wood, which I did not include. He took us through meeting Virgil and then we ended up in the vestibule, right? We saw the beasts and then we're watching our friends who are feudal rush about chasing the flag. Okay, and as he pointed out, we didn't really make a whole lot of progress. That's where we were. That's what we made it through last time. So if you're just joining us, we didn't even make it to circles. You're good. <laughs> okay, so here we go. What we're doing tonight, we're gonna do limbo, which sort of the first thing that we hit, it's not really a circle. Okay, you've got lust in our first proper circle, then gluttony. We're gonna do greed and prodigality, wrath and sullenness, heresy, and violence. That's where I'm gonna let off. And then, next week you're gonna hear about fraud and treachery. <laughs> Stay tuned. Right. Okay, so, this is where we are. Let's begin. All right, so, as we head into limbo, Limbo is from limbus, so the Latin actually just means literally the edge or the rim. So we're kind of standing on the brink of hell, kind of overlooking. Uh, this is actually, interestingly, sort of a quiet pause. This is one of the few places where there isn't this huge either bellowing on the part of whoever the guard of the circle is, or wailing and shrieking, right? So here, there are only sighs. There's sort of a piece of sorts insofar as there could be peace in hell. And that's because we're not dealing with people who are there because of a sin. So Dante tells us, or actually Virgil tells us, they did not sin. If they had merits, these were not enough. Baptism they did not have. The one gate to the faith which you believe. And if they lived before the Christian faith, they did not give God homage as they ought. And of these people, I am myself one. For such a falling short, and for no crime, we all are lost, and suffer only this, hopeless, we live forever in desire. Okay, so notice, there's not a punishment for an active sin, if I can put it that way, but the gates of hell are correct. There is no hope for those who are in limbo. So it's sort of an eternal you know, stopover in MSP, right? You're just <laughs> there, right? And it's not gonna change, okay? Now, the good news, insofar as we've got good news here, is that there's this ring of light in limbo, uh, the light uh, signifying truth here. And as you move toward the ring of light, you see various people to be honored. Now. Some of these folks are recognizable to our friends. So you've got here our great poets. So our great poets toward your left are Homer. He's holding the sword. Okay, so Homer, Odyssey, Iliad, big old war epics, right? And the sword is also a sign of authority. So Homer is the greatest of the poets. If you disagree, take it up with Dante. Homer is the greatest of the poets. That's what we got. So he's our epic poet. Okay, I'm going to follow up with, you've got Horace, right? you've got Ovid, 
got Lucan, and then they greet Virgil, who's off, but is one of our five great poets. So Virgil's arrived back with Dante, and they welcome Virgil. And then they welcome Dante as the sixth great poet. <laughs> it's only bragging if you can't back it up. So... Yes, so we get to hang out with the greatest of poets of all time in Limbo. I used to get to see them. We come to the castle with the seven walls and the stream running around it. Okay, this is great because this is really the only time you're going to see a stream. From here on out, we've got boiling muck, we've got rivers of blood, right? A lot of stuff's happening. But this is the only place you're going to get an actual stream. Okay, the seven walls of the city. This is thought to be the castle of knowledge. So if you look at your seven walls, you're looking at what the medievals would consider your seven branches of learning. So you've got the trivium. So you've got grammar, logic, rhetoric. Those are your three. And then you go on to the quadrivium. So music, arithmetic, geometry, astronomy. So these are the walls of our castle of knowledge. And here we see various, again, people to be honored. A number of them are nobles who are associated with Troy, and thus are, at least in legend, going to be founding Rome as well. The people that I'm going to nod to are going to be the philosophers. A good number of my intellectual friends are stuck in limbo. So he gives a beautiful tribute, actually, to Aristotle. The master of those who know among his wisdom-seeking family Philosophy literally means love of wisdom. So among his wisdom-seeking family, all look upon him there, all honor him. I saw the souls of Socrates and Plato where they stood nearer to him than the rest. We go on to name a ton of pre-Socratics. I'm actually teaching a course at the moment that seems to be made up pretty much of people stuck in limbo. Right? That's our entire syllabus for the semester. So what we have here right, is the castle of knowledge We've got the light of truth illuminating it. But this is really the last time that we see light in hell. From here on out, it's going to be dark. It's going to be dreary. We descend into a place where nothing ever shines. So we leave our souls in limbo, and we enter into hell proper. All right, so Minos is our first judge, and he's kind of slightly bizarre. So he judges the souls, and then he wraps his tail around his stomach like a belt. However many times he wraps his tail around his stomach, that's the ring you end up in. And then you get thrown into whatever ring that is. So there we go. Uh, Meadows counsels, actually, that they should be careful. He tells Dante, be careful whom you trust. To move through. We end up first in the circle of lust. Okay, now I take it that the question of being careful about whom you trust should give us sort of a grain of salt when we start talking to people. Here, I'll start with a general description, but we're going to be talking to the pair of lovers here in the picture. So, the lustful in this circle are caught up in a strong wind. Okay, so the weather generally tells you what's going on in each circle. A strong wind, because they were carried away by their passion in life. 
that hellish cyclone that can never rest snatches the spirits up in its driving whirl, whisks them about and beats and buffets them. You can see why I thought the Augustans sounded kind of uncannily similar. And when they fall before the ruined slope, ah, then the shrieking, the laments, the cries. Then they hurl curses at the power of God. I learned that such torment was designed for the damned who were wicked in the flesh, who made their reason subject to desire. Okay, that last part, just hold on to that for the duration. Who made their reason subject to desire. Remember inordinate desire. So inordinate desire is disorder desire. It's holding goods out of place, giving them too much or too little or an improper priority, right? So how exactly would we figure out what ordered desire looks like? In a word, reason. So here we've got people who gave up the guide. Reason is supposed to be our guide. It's a God-given gift. It's supposed to guide our passions. Here are people who let reason slide to the side and passion rules. Dante wants to talk to Francesca and Paolo, who are a couple here. So everybody's sort of flying around like birds, right? It's these sort of flocks that are being tossed by the wind. Interestingly, I want you to just note the way the language works here. So Virgil tells Dante to beg them by the love that drives them on, and they will come. Which is interesting, right? He's on a mission from God to walk through hell. But instead of saying, hail them in the name of God, hail them, right? By the love that drives them on. Why? Because we hail people by something that's central to them by something that they value, by something that's very, very important to them. And our lovers here hurl curses of the power of God, but can be made to stop if you hail them by the love that drives them on. Francesca does all the talking, interestingly. Okay, So uh, the story is that Francesca was married to Paolo's brother, and these two have an affair, and Paolo's brother kills them. So he shows up later. <laughs> but for now, we're just going to stick with these two. So we have an adulterous love affair here. OK, notice the way that Francesca talks. Absolutely everything she does, everything she says, attempts to switch blame. Okay. So let me run through a couple passages. So here's Francesca. She's talking to Dante, and she throws in, were he who rules the universe our friend, we would entreat him, praying for your peace, for you have pitied us our twisted fate. Were God our friend, yeah, God is the one who's really turned his back on you. So God is the one who has ghosted you. Right. That's not quite the way this works, of course, but she continues. So she's describing what happened. He asks what happened to them and how they fell into this tryst. Love which allows no one loved not to love seized me with such a strong delight in him that as you see, it will not leave me yet. Love led us to one death. Mm -hmm. I'll let that sit there for a minute. 
So the story is that the two of them were reading together in the garden. They were reading the story of Lancelot and Guinevere. So as you likely know, Guinevere is the wife of King Arthur. Lancelot is her lover. And so they read about when Lancelot finally steals a kiss from Guinevere. So she starts the story by saying that they were alone and innocent and felt no cause for fear. But we were conquered by one point alone. For when we read that the much longed for smile accepted such a gentle lover's kiss, this man whom nothing will divide from me trembled to place his lips upon my mouth. A pander was that author and his book. Okay, so let's rewind for a minute. So it turns out that love seized her with such strong delight and led them on. Okay, so notice what that means. It means that love is irresistible. Love is the reason we're having a problem here. Love overpowers reason. Okay. And interestingly, there's sort of a Milton-esque, when you start talking through Adam and Eve here, there's sort of an odd and slightly touching romanticism in all this, right? That their love was so great that nothing could stand before it. Love conquers all, including reason. Not a good mix. Okay, so we start out with love overpowered us. It wasn't really our fault. Then we move on to, notice when she says what happened, he kissed me. Okay, possible, but let's say that's true, right? But thus far, we've got nothing about herself. We end with, a pander was that author and his book. So thus far, God's not her friend anymore. How petty. Number two, love overwhelmed us all, right? Can't resist love? It's love. Number three, he kissed me. Right? And number four, it's the author's fault. Okay. And that's pretty much where she leaves it. That's what happened to her. That's why she's in this torment. Got a couple levels of denial going there, right? Okay, so... C.S. Lewis is great on this question of love. So he says that one of the ways that we should think about inordinate desire uh, kind of helps us a little bit with the question of loving other people. So if we're Christians and we think that we should love other people to the point of laying down our lives for other people, Lewis notes that it's kind of jarring sometimes to be told by people like Augustine that other people, friends and family, count as temporal goods. Because that seems weird. We're immortal souls after all. How did we end up in the temporal good part? Well, partly because of what he's talking about is things that can be taken from you and temporal powers. So there's that. But Lewis has a rather nice gloss. So he says, if you're asking, what does it mean to have inordinate love? Not for things. Things we're pretty good at, right? We give up things for Lent. We don't generally give up people for Lent. I wouldn't recommend it, right? Okay, but what does that look like? How do I know when I have inordinate love for another person? Lewis's question is, we should ask ourselves this. Whom do I serve? So in particular, of course, when we're talking about questions of conscience, we can be asked, right? If you loved me, you wouldn't press this point. If you loved me, you would do this. 
and not that. If you loved me, you would simply not act in this particular case. But if that's actually what's being asked of us, then we're being asked to serve the other person rather than the truth. And the truth has a name. The truth is God. So that kind of question of whom do I serve is helpful in trying to think through what kind of love is an appropriate love. Francesca doesn't seem to have figured out what went wrong. She seems to think that she served either Paolo or herself or love with a capital L, but not God. She's still angry with God. Okay, here we go. I don't actually have a slide for gluttony, so I suppose I should put this down and stop gesturing, but let me talk about our next. So we leave lust and we head into gluttony. Okay, gluttony is kind of an interesting image here. So our gluttons are mired. They're in stinking muck and they're pelted with cold rain and sleet and snow and hail. So it's kind of like the postal system, but a circle of hell, you just have to just sort of keep going. So they're guarded by Cerberus, who's the three-headed dog, right, from Greek mythology, uh, which is great entrance to the gluttons, right? Because he's got three mouths. He's barking at Virgil and Dante as they come down. And Virgil picks up handfuls of muck and throws them into the dog's mouth. And he goes quiet, sort of trying to choke down as much mud as he can get. Yum. Okay, so, uh, but this gives us a clue to how we should think about this. So Cerberus is barking and eating, so he's got these animal reactions. He's unruled by reason. Again, we're dealing with an animal appetite. So here with our gluttons, their mouths are filled with this constant supply of mud and water, right? This sort of stinking water. So there's this inordinate desire for food and drink as sources of pleasure while one is alive. And rather than having this natural appetite guided with reason in desiring and valuing food and drink as nutrition for the body, right? Instead, there's this turn toward the pleasure. And it ends for our gluttons in sort of being caught in this tasteless and unsustaining parody of nourishment. So clearly the mud and the water aren't going to do much to nourish the body. But there's this interesting sort of pulling back the veil. So in, in life, we think of gluttony as sort of warm and cozy. It's comfort food, right? But its reality is that it's, if you really are a glutton, then you're passing over the good of the thing for the temporary pleasure of the thing. So it's a misplaced valuing of the good before you. They're not nourished. And interestingly, they are lying prone, sort of wallowing in the mud. They're not even talking to each other. They're just sort of laying there. Okay. And he talks to one of the people who is stuck in this ring. Uh, so Chaco is this fellow Florentine. He calls himself the hog, right? That's what people called me. Uh, and they talk about this coming political strife in Florence. But this is one of the first places where we learn what the souls are waiting for. So we're told that at the trump of doom, at the last judgment, each soul will get its body back. Okay, so really, they're not complete at this point. So Dante, being a thoughtful fellow, turns to Virgil. 
When they get their bodies back, will their suffering be more? Or will it be less? Or will it be the same? And I'll quote Virgil because he's singing my song. Turn to your philosophy again. Turn to your philosophy again, which shows that when a thing at last is whole, it feels more pleasure. Okay, so when you're sick, food is just kind of sawdusty. Not particularly fun. Yeah, it's gross. Okay, so when I'm well again, then if I'm hale and healthy, I can actually enjoy the good. But here's the problem. It's also the case that if you're complete, you can feel more pain. For all that these accursed folk cannot come to their true perfection and man's end, they look to be more perfect than now. Which is kind of sobering, right? It's bad enough, one would think, to be stuck, mired in the mud and pelted with cold rain. For eternity! Yay! Okay, it's going to get worse. Because when you have your body back, then you can actually feel it. Okay, so this is one of the first times when we learn that there's sort of a second step to all this. We're waiting for the last judgment. We're waiting for the bodies to come back. Okay, onward. We now end up in the circle of greed and prodigality. So this particular circle, so we're switching. We've gone through right lust, then we've gone gluttony, now we're into greed. So in greed and prodigality, this circle is guarded by Plutus, the god of wealth. So he's babbling. Nobody really knows what's going on. Uh, he seems to be invoking Satan, but nobody really knows what it means. It's kind of gibberish. This is indicative of the unreasonableness of the souls. So these particular souls are, in fact, yelling at each other through all of this. So you've got the greedy and the spendthrifts who both misuse the temporal good of wealth. So the vices here are very Aristotelian. So for Aristotle, you've got an excess in terms of feeling or action a deficiency in terms of feeling or action, and then the virtue is always in the middle. Okay, now I don't mean dead middle, sometimes it's off to one side, etc., but it's in between the excess and the deficiency. Okay, so in this case, the misers are deficient. They're deficient in their willingness to use and be generous with their wealth. Okay, the prodigals are excessive, the spendthrifts, they just sort of throw money at anything. Okay. For both vices, reason is supplanted by desire, which has been our theme, right? Desires in the driver's seat. Okay, so desire is the guide to action. And the desire in question is inordinate. So I want to suggest a couple ways that it's inordinate. First, it's inordinate because, of course, it prioritizes a temporal good over eternal goods. But also, this is a rather interesting kind of difficulty. So in this particular circle, they have these huge boulders, and the spendthrift teams roll the boulders up on one side, and then the misers roll the boulder up on the other side, and then they scream at each other, right? <laughs> so you're too tight with money, right? You idiot, you spend it on everything. And then they roll the boulders at each other. Crash, right? So we have this huge jousting match, and then they do it again. So it's sort of Sisyphus, but like obnoxious bowling at each other. So, and we just keep doing this. It's a madhouse. So one reason that this particular desire for wealth is inordinate is because the desire doesn't actually have a satiety point, by which I mean, how much money is enough money? Answer, 
there's no such thing, right? Okay, so notice, at least with gluttony, there seems to be a satiety point of sorts or a limit. Right? You can shove yourself full with food, but at some point, A, it gets uncomfortable, and B, you have to stop, right? Bad things will happen if you don't. Okay, so there's a satiety point. There's a physical limit. The nature of food also makes it pretty temporary, right? If you've ever tried to stockpile raspberries, after a couple days, that just is not a good idea. Okay, you can't stockpile raspberries indefinitely. You can stockpile money. Hmm. Okay, so in some sense, this is why mammon is a really effective idol. Now, in each case, when you have an inordinate desire, you're putting something above an eternal good. Ultimately, at least it's taken to the farthest extent, above God. So why is mammon such an effective idol? Well, partially because our desire for it can be ongoing. You don't have a built-in limit point. I can amass wealth without fear of becoming full or fear of spoiling, right? It's always something I can give myself over to. Okay, so here we go. Here's Virgil commenting. Ill-giving and ill-keeping snatched from them the lovely world and set them in this brawl. I will not fritify it by my words. Now you can see, my son, how short a jest are the good things assigned to fortune's care, for which the human race squabble and squall, for all the gold that lies beneath the moon, and all that has could never give a moment of rest to one of these exhausted souls. Why are they exhausted? Because the chase continues. If there's no limit point, you have no rest in the chase. Okay, so in making reason secondary to desire, the greedy and the prodigal, they're rejecting reason, right? This gift that makes us distinctly human. And in doing this, they actually become less recognizable as individuals. Okay, which is interesting. They also don't actually make distinctions themselves. They're very bad at figuring out what they should do with their money, right? What is the right way to use the money? Notice that in an Aristotelian opposing virtue kind of scheme, sorry, erase that, opposing vice kind of scheme, where the virtue's in the middle. If you're at one of the vices, you understand yourself to be at the virtue point, right? So if you're the miser, everybody else is a spendthrift including the person who is properly liberal. Okay, if you're a spendthrift, everybody else is a miser. Right? Now the Scot in me hurts, but yeah. So if, if that's the way this works, right, these people don't make distinctions, which is, again, a rational kind of thing to do. And then, ironically, it makes them less recognizably distinct. They're indistinguishable. So... Dante thinks he actually recognizes some people, and Virgil just waves him off, right? The know-nothing life that made them foul dims them beyond all recognition now. They're just one sort of indistinguishable mass of people, right? Anthony Eastland actually notes that this is the first circle in which they don't talk to anybody. We just pass through. Okay, here we go. All right. I'm going to skip a little bit here. He talks about the role of fortune, and this underscores how irrational greed and prodigality are, since these things can be taken from you. Okay. The point I want to hammer, though, is that there is this constant motion that they keep running through. There is no rest here. Let me backtrack for just a second. 
want to talk a little bit about mutuality as you move through the circles. So one way of thinking about where we've been is to say that, or let me do it this way, why are we going in this order? How did lust get to be okay and hoarding money is below that, like worse? Right? Adulterous affairs sound pretty lousy. So how is like, being overly concerned with your bank account farther down in hell than that? Okay, so one way of understanding this is, again, we're dealing with desire. So this is people who have sort of tripped into their passions, if I can put it that way. We'll deal with people who choose deliberately later. But these people are sort of kind of overcome in the moment. They let go of their reason as they go into the passion. So with lust, you have, yes, a desire for pleasure, but certainly in the case of our adulterous lovers, this isn't a seduction, they have a desire for mutual pleasure. Okay, so there's some sort of mutuality. If you go on then into gluttony, interestingly, they don't care about each other, not even attending to one another. It's sort of laying prone and <laughs> insensible. Okay, so notice the way pleasure works. Pleasure is only my pleasure. So if you're focusing on pleasure, there's a sort of turn to ego, right? So I'm a self turned in on myself. Greed is interesting because you have a whole bunch of egos that are aware enough to realize that there are other egos out there. And they come into these little tribes of hate. So they're sort of perverse communities. So they get together in order to be able to roll their boulders up and smash them at the other teams. Okay, so insofar as that's a community, it's a pretty awful one. Okay, so we've turned from desire for some sort of mutual good, not a particularly well-ordered one, an inordinate good, but we've moved through, I want something for the other person, to are there other people? Who knows? To, yeah, there are other people, and they're threats. Okay, and now we're going to go into wrath. When you hit the wrathful circle, we go into a slew, and the wrathful people are attacking each other. And I don't mean a boxing match. I mean they're biting and trying to rip and kick at each other. We've gone from teams who hate other teams to all against all. All of us hate and attack everyone else in the wrathful circle. Okay. At the top, then, you have this huge pitched battle. But the people on the surface are not the only people in the circle of wrath. They're also the sullen. And the sullen are actually submerged. You know they're there because they're the little bubbles that keep popping up. Okay, so here we go. Here are the sullen. Oh, sorry. I should give you... Yeah, we'll catch up with everything going on here in a second. Sullen we were, up in the sweet air, gladdened by the sun, bearing a sluggish smoke within our hearts. Now we are sullen in this black bog here. They can't even get out the words of the song that they're apparently singing because they're gargling mud. Love it. Okay, so um, there are a couple different interpretations that people have offered of this. Uh, I'll give you Dorothy Sayers. So Dorothy Sayers says that there's an active... Wrath. Those are the people who are launching each other, beating each other on the surface. And then, hello, Minnesota, there's a passive-aggressive wrath. <laughs> Woo! Okay, so there's the wrath that's turned in on itself, the seething wrath. 
Mm. So they talk about having a smoke, sort of a smokiness in their heart that blots out being able to enjoy anything else. So they're the people in the mud who are just seething and burbling. Bubble, bubble, I hate you, bubble. Okay, so those are our wrathful people. At this point, Dante and Virgil head over the river, the river Styx at this point, and they're carried by the boatman. So this is Phlegius, he is the son of the war god Ares. Uh, he actually, I won't tell you the whole story, but he ends up having a fight with Apollo and getting killed by Apollo. So he's the perfect person to take you between wrath, being the son of the war god, and things like heresy, having attacked the gods. So he just keeps going back and forth over the river. He takes them across, halfway across, one of the souls, uh, so Argenti in this case, tries to come up and just sort of yells at Dante, and Dante yells back at him, and Virgil pushes the soul away from the boat. And there's this sort of uncomfortable moment where uh, Dante is delighted that the soul is being attacked by the other souls. Okay. I'm not going to comment much on that, but it's interesting that this is the first time that Dante has said, yeah, this soul, this soul has done something wrong. So there's this interesting mirror between sort of the, the wrath of the soul that's in the circle and so a sort of a, an unrighteous wrath and the wrath of Dante in the boat, which seems to be a righteous wrath, anger at this soul for having defied God. And Virgil actually praises him for this. It's one of the first times that Virgil sort of says, way to go, you're making progress. Gives him this big hug, right? Okay, so it's a little bit uncomfortable insofar as we're cheering for this guy to get pummeled and ripped apart by their souls. But if you take an allegorical meaning, Dante's beginning to realize that it's not just that he pities all these souls. Right? It's sort of been, oh, how terrible, or he's wondered at it, or it's been uh, off-putting. But we're heading from the souls that are sort of passion-driven toward the other kinds of sins. Okay, so I want to paint a picture for you. They get across the water. So here we are heading to the city of Dis. So this is a fiery, glowing city. Um, the name is an alternate name for Hades, and this is sort of the counterpart of the heavenly city, the counterpart of Jerusalem. So this is the citadel. Okay, here's the story. The demons out front here come out. The fallen angels come out, and they're jeering at Dante and Virgil. They say to Virgil, come inside. We'll talk to you. Leave him. Leave him on his own. Okay. Virgil tells Dante to have no fear. Right? No one can take us from our passage because it's been granted by God. But we have a rather interesting kind of difficulty here. Dante is beginning to panic. The devils aren't letting them through. Okay? And we get this horrible cast of characters who start showing up. So up on the hillside, we see that there's an angel coming to help them. But down at the city, he's not here yet. And we start to get, again, a cast of horribles. So we've got the Furies from Greek mythology who call on Medusa. 
Medusa is the Gorgon, right? If you look at Medusa, you turn to stone. Medusa is a threat. The threat in the pond as they come across is only momentary, right? Virgil shoves him away. Here we have a real threat. Here, Dante's soul is in danger of being turned to stone, which is to say, despairing. And Virgil tells him that if he looks at Medusa, there will be no return to the upper world. He will be in hell. He will be stuck here. Okay, which means that he will have abandoned hope and will be now among the circles. Okay. This is one of the few times where Dante just sort of stops and breaks the fourth wall and addresses the reader. Oh, you whose intellects see clear and whole, gaze on the doctrine that is here, hidden beneath the unfamiliar verse's veil. And then he lets loose. Well, I want you to imagine that you're Peter Jackson, right, of like Hobbit, Lord of the Rings fame. This is what you've got. Bring on your CGI. You've got the Furies who are shrieking at Dante and Virgil. Dante's got his hands over his eyes. Virgil's got his hands on top of Dante's hands. Because this is serious, right? You've got Medusa coming down, hissing, right? The other Gorgons, you've got snakes everywhere. The demons are jeering and sort of orc-like, right? All over the place. Then here comes the angel down. The angel, we've got a page long worth of, the wind is whipping like a gale and the waters part and the angel's coming through the middle. Like, oh my gosh, it's going to be a battle. This is going to be crazy, right? These huge powers are about to crash into each other. So Dante's by the gate. The angel comes through. We have this huge buildup. The angel gets to the gate and takes a little wand and goes, bop. <laughs> and it opens. Okay. So what did we learn? What are we supposed to take from the unfamiliar verses? I take it, it looks something like this. We know who's won. God has won the victory. The gates of hell are still bent and open. Why? Because Christ destroyed them. Okay? But we know that God has won the victory. However, back to my first slide, there's still a spiritual battle for every single soul, right? So we have this fascinating counterpoint God has won the victory. No one can stop us from our journey except who? Oh, wait, us. We're the weak link. But with his guide and with the trust that our heavenly help is coming, Dante makes it through. Okay, Brandon, how much time do I get? Nine o'clock. <laughs> okay. We can do circles in 10 minutes. Not a problem. Okay. Let me just take us down toward lower hell. Okay, so one of the things you're going to find is that we're going to run into heretics. So we're not quite to the violent yet, but let me tell you about the heretics. So they go into the city and they see a whole bunch of tombs made of iron, and the heretics are in the different tombs. Okay, the heretics are not only themselves in the tombs, but they have everybody who joined their heresy in the tomb. It's quite a full bus, right? So you're stuck in the tomb. Okay, I want you to note that we've shifted. Once you hit this city, right, the fiery city, we're dealing with things that are willful. So I'm going to read to you. Here's Charles Williams. It is necessary to remember what Dante meant by heresy. 
He meant an obduracy of the mind, a spiritual state which defied consciously a power to which trust and obedience are due, an intellectual obstinacy. A heretic strictly was a man who knew what he was doing. He accepted the church, but at the same time, he preferred his own judgment to that of the church. This would seem to be impossible, except that it is apt to happen to all of us after our own manner. I'll let Mr. Williams have the last word there. So here, we're not really dealing with heretics being in hell because they genuinely don't know the truth. Right? On this reading, right, it's not that they have a flaw in their reasoning. They didn't flunk a logic test. Right? Heretics have willfully rejected the truth. And if that's what's happening, then the iron tombs are like their own obstinate minds. They're trapped in their own thinking. And it's only going to get worse. So I'll pass over the people he talks to, but he talks to a number of souls. And part of his confusion is the souls seem to be able to see the future, but they don't seem to know what's going on presently among the living. Okay? And he's told that that's correct. The souls can see the future, and they don't know what's happening right now. But when the last judgment comes, the tombs are open now. Once they get their bodies back, the tombs are sealed. Okay, which means that they would have no means of knowing anything more than they do at the moment of the sealing of the tomb. They will be locked in an echo chamber of their own mistaken theories. They sealed themselves off from truth, and they will now be sealed off from further knowledge for eternity. Okay, Anthony Eastland also makes the point that the only souls we talk to are souls that taught that the soul, sorry, souls of heretics, I've got too many souls running around, the heresy. What's the heresy? The heresy is that the soul is not immortal. Surprise! Right? So we've got a bit of irony here. Turns out the soul is immortal. Oh, dear. Okay, why are people... This helps explain, though. So why are people who lived before Christ among the heretics? How does that work? How can you be a heretical if you don't even know who Christ is? Well, the answer to that is that we think that reason can know by reason alone, certain truths, including immortality of the soul. Hmm. Okay, so that's why they're within the heretics. Now I want to talk about violence. Great. So here's our last big move. When we get to the end of our trip through the heretics, then we start heading down the hill, and it's too stinky, so we'd sit down, and Virgil explains what lower hell looks like. Okay. And here, too, he tells Dante that he should check his Aristotle, which makes me happy. So here we go. Things are looking worse, or these are different kinds of sins. So all malice meriting the hate of God has for its end injustice. All such ends afflict the sufferer by force. Or fraud. Since fraud's a sin peculiar to man, because when we try to deceive someone, we know we're doing it. It's always knowledgeable. It's always willful. God hates it more. So the fraudulent sink farther down, assailed by greater pain. Okay, so here's my little chart. We're going to have three rings of the violent, which is our last big assignment. And we're going to divide it up. So Aristotle, in Ethics 7.1, thinks that there are three main kinds of behavior that's wrong. So you've got incontinence, which is uncontrolled appetite. You have bestiality, which is sort of a perverted appetite. 
And then you've got malice or vice. So some sort of abuse of our reason and will. Okay. Cicero thinks that all injurious kinds of conduct can be either by violence or by fraud. So if you put all those things together, you got three main classes of sins. You've got incontinence, you've got violence, and you've got fraud. And then we get to subdivide. Yay! So we get to subdivide. So it turns out that you could be violent against your neighbor, either the person of your neighbor by attacking this person, killing or injuring. Um, and again, this is not wrathful. This is, I'm honestly choosing it. Okay, so this is not a crime of passion. This is me thinking about how to harm another person. Okay, you could attack someone's property. So arson, theft, a couple other examples. If you're going to attack yourself, we've got suicide. If you attack your own property, then you throw away your wealth or you gamble it or you weep for things that should have brought you joy. If you attack God's person, you've got blasphemy and scorn of God. If you attack God's property, which happens to be his creation, then you've got things like sodomy and usury. Here we go. Okay, if you do it this way, then let me go back to where we were. You've got these things, the lust, gluttony, greed, prodigality, anger, sullenness section. This is your incontinence section. That's what we just did. Okay, then you have got, if we keep going, violence, and that's its own thing down here, which we're about to do. And then you've got two circles that are fraud, okay, down here. But that's really just wrong behaviors. So as a Christian, we've got Dante adding on. So he gives you two circles of wrong belief. So either you've got unbelief up in limbo, or you've just got wrong belief, mischief down here. So this is, again, intellectual stubbornness. And then if you go with people who don't really have faith or works and just sort of didn't commit to anything, you're back up in the vestibule. Hmm. Virgil's going to do charts. We're going to do charts. So here we go. This is our first circle of or first ring of the violent. So these are your murderers. Now I want you to notice that a couple things are happening here. You've got the Minotaur who's guarding our big circle here. The Minotaur is half man, half bull. So he's half beast, half human. And here, guarding the murderers, you have, again, half humans, half beasts, your centaurs. And they shoot with arrows anybody who gets out of his proper depth. So the worse you were, the farther in the bloody river you are. Hmm. As for the landscape here, you've got a river of blood. Next, we're going to head through a blasted wood. And then we're going to end up in horrible burning sands. Pretty much nothing can grow here. It's absolutely deathly and infertile. Okay. If, yeah, we keep going. I'm just going to skip to the suicides because this is a rather interesting one. So here we've got the suicides. We also have people who threw away their wealth, but let's stick with the suicides. Virgil tells Dante to tear off a branch and it begins to bleed and moan. Now, in this picture, so this is Gustave Dore, in the picture, you would expect that the souls talk from what seem to be their mouths. That's not actually true. They both bleed and speak through the wound. Mm. Okay, so 
we do this right. These are people who rejected the gift of their lives. So they rejected God's gift to them of being human. In this case, then, they tell us they've been thrown down into hell, and wherever they landed, they took root. So when we actually see what the suicides have done, they put themselves in the place of the creator. They don't want to be creatures. They want to decide what they're going to do and when. They don't want a place in God's providence. They're not going to accept that role. They know better than God does. So they take root at random, wherever they fall, because they didn't trust in God's providence that there would be a purposeful place for them. And if you look at them, at the last judgment, they're going to get their bodies back, but they can't inhabit them. The bodies will be hanging on the thorns on the outside of the tree. They rejected their bodies, and God said, okay. They don't get them back. Instead, they're caught in a, there's sort of a reason within the plant. So they're still in existence, but they've rejected the kind of incarnation they actually had, and they've given it up for this sort of tormented cagedness. You thought your body was a cage? Well, this is an actual cage. Okay, I'm going to jump through. Skipping. We're now moving out of the blasted forest, and we're into, okay, so you've got burning sand, and you've got fire flakes. So it looks, they say, kind of like snow, but it's burning. Lovely. Okay, so some people are lying down. You've got your blasphemers, and then you've got a whole bunch of people who are running. So these are your sodomites. And then you've got people who are also kneeling, but that's generally if you stop running, then you have to sit there for 100 years and let the fire fall on you. Okay, so some people are allowed to brush off the fire, some aren't. But Dante meets a former mentor. So this is Brunetto Latini who hails him. And they have this discussion back and forth. This is beautiful and heartbreaking. So Dante recognizes his mentor and says that you are here, and the form of address is a form, it's a respectful form of address. So it's something to say, you, someone of your intellect and someone of all your accomplishments, someone whom I love, you are here. So this is Dante speaking. If I could have my wishes heard in full, I answered him, you would not even now be banished from our life. It moves my heart, but in my mind, your image is set firm. How like a father, gentle and beloved, you taught me in the world from time to time. How man achieves an everlasting name. And in my words, as long as I may live, I shall declare my gratitude to you. I'll note to you that his words include exactly what I just read. Right? So this is a tribute as well. So a couple of things. As you look through the souls that he puts in hell, right? sometimes it can seem like he's just throwing enemies left and right. There's a pope, there's a politician, right? I'm the poet, wah ha ha. Okay, but he also is relatively fair-minded insofar as he clearly loves this man, but he also recognizes the man's flaws, his sins. 
I find it particularly moving insofar as it brings us back to where we were, where we were before. So if God has won the victory, and he has, the only thing that's really in question is the battle for every individual human soul. And Dante mourns to see that a friend has lost that battle because the only person who could have lost that battle is he himself. And this is a full picture of a man. He loves him. He gives him his due, right? You were like a father to me. Oh, it's heartbreaking. And it's meant to be heartbreaking, right? We're not supposed to be reading through and saying, ha, ha, ridiculous, stupid souls. That's not what we're doing. These are real people. Some of them are obviously not real people, but they're right. These are souls, and every single one of them has a story, and every single one of them fought a battle, whether he or she knew it or not. Okay, here we go. Once they pass through from the blasphemers and the sodomites, then they are going to start descending. They're going to head on into our last levels. We've got fraud and treachery. So sort of we're technically in lower hell from here down, but fraud and treachery are the grand march. We've got three rings for violence. We have trenches upon trenches for fraud and treachery because these are where we actively use our reason to undermine our own and others' goods. We actively use our reason to defy God. So, here we go. I want to leave you just with that last point that I've been trying to hammer. God has won the victory, but there's a fight for every soul. And Dante is aware of the various things that can be an ordinate desire and the various ways in which we can let our reason either be turned or we can let it fall to the wayside and give up hope that we could do differently. So I hope you come next time for Fraud and Treachery, and thank you for letting me be with you tonight. I'm sorry that was too long. Yeah, I'm sorry that was too long, though. What we can do is then. Dr. Deagle said that she'll take two questions. <laughs> two. Zero. <laughs> well, One going once. One question. What did the fellow he liked so much do? Oh, okay. So the question is, what did Brunetto Latini... Yes. Um, Latini is in the ring with the sodomites. So that's, that's his sin. Yeah. What about assisted suicide? Okay. Right. So um, assisted suicide would mean that someone is the assister, if the assister is directly killing the individual, would be guilty of homicide. So that person, I mean, if we're doing Dante, that person would be in the river of blood. Okay, but we live in a kind of... <laughs> a sad and indirect age. I'm not exactly sure what you're going to do with the person who right, 
filled the prescription for the, right, I mean, you've got a couple of different questions there. But if the question is assisted suicide and it is direct killing of an innocent, that's homicide. Because there's a difference between requested assisted suicide and non-requested for someone who can't do it, too. Okay, right. So you've got a couple different things to worry about. But if you're dealing with a suicide, I mean, I suppose, I'm actually answering the question theologically. I'm answering the question a la Dante. Right. Your suicide ends up in the yeah, wood. Is that, for, is that a bigger, that's the bigger sin, to, to actually be the suicide yes. sister? Uh, yes. Not the way he's got it set up. So to be a person who, so if you don't actively kill yourself, then the other person is committing homicide and you are asking them to do it, but you didn't directly take your own life. So it's sort of like hiring a hitman on yourself. Okay, which is clearly irrational. But. That's one, go for it. I'm sure was Dante's mentor, is there any indication that he was still alive and he could have read this and been aware of it, or was he already dead? And That's a great question. Uh, I believe he was dead, but don't quote me on that. All right. Is there anybody okay. else who maybe got, like, oh, wow, that's me? <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, there are a lot of predictions for what's going to happen in Florence, <laughs> some of which have already happened by the time we got the... Okay. Anyway. Yeah. Great. Thank you, Dr. Diebel.